Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your friggin' lug nuts, kids. It's time for an overall. Let's do it. Delighted to be back with you again on this wonderful Saturday morning. It's that time of year where we've just come out of January. We still got February, obviously, ahead of us. Uh, That could mean anything here in Chicago. But this morning, the sun is up a little bit earlier. Uh, It's a little quieter out in the yard than it's been in a few days. Uh, Yesterday, was it yesterday or the day before? One of the two, doesn't matter. It was in the 50s. You know what that means? I had shorts on. Now I know for some of you, you think, John, it's a little early. I say, no, it isn't. If it's 48 and above, I'm in shorts. I don't know why that is. I just enjoy it. I'm not to the point where I, you know, I'm out in the yard with no shoes on yet because that's a little bit dicey, but there was a time I'd be trampling around, you know, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's something about this, this very, very early vestiges of spring trying to make itself known when it gets lighter earlier and it's not dark at four o'clock in the afternoon anymore, you know, that I think that's a really good thing. So hopefully I have some good things for you this morning. Uh, It's been a busy week. It's always a busy week on this end of the microphone. I hope your week was busy as well in a good way. And I got some things to cover uh, and see if I can shove them all into my 30-minute self-imposed time limit here. We'll see. So the first thing up is um, I've been producing podcasts for a lot of other people. I get a great uh, uh, joy out of creating something from nothing. I'm not sure... Where that comes from, my dad always wanted to be an architect, and he ended up being in the banking industry for a very long time, which made him a good living, but he wasn't always real happy with it. So he would tinker around the house and build stuff and design stuff and things. And on one hand, it was pretty cool to watch the old man say, you know, I think I'm going to move the front door. (laughs) You're going to move the front door, Dad? Okay. And they did. My Uncle Ronnie came down from... uh, the wilds of the great Fox Valley near Appleton. And he was quite the carpenter and had his own construction company. So the country mouse came down to help the city mouse and they moved the front door. And it, when I drive by to this day, the door's still where they put it about 50 years ago. Uh, we used to have, we had this big, huge Victorian house uh, that we moved to in 1966, right before the huge snowstorm in Chicago in 1967. And it was just a really incredible. We went from living in a two flat to this giant castle is the way that I, my dad saw it. My, our family basically seen it. it was just this big house. And I had my own huge room and two big windows that looked out over the street. I could crawl out of the window and sit on the front top of the porch, you know, the roof in the summertime is great. Anyway, uh, to go to that big house was such a, a huge deal for my dad. So he was always in there trying to improve on it. Now this thing was built in the 1800s. And I don't, it's not a landmark or anything like that, but it's, you know, it's, it's up there and it's been sold two or three times since he passed. Uh, and I always drive by now and again to see what kind of improvements they've made or anything like that. Uh, we, they had a huge garage now, three car garage right off the alley. We had a garage when we moved there. It was in the far back of the property and it was just falling apart. And I'll never forget the first summer there. So it would have been the summer of 67. I would have been nine going on 10 and, uh, I'm sorry, eight going on nine. And 
I thought it was a good idea to jump off the garage roof into about a two-foot-deep swimming pool. <laughs> that lasted maybe twice, I think. Uh, and uh, something also about putting a, one of those little folding chairs, you know, with the, with the straps on them that kind of that always bite into your, your thighs when you sit on that seat sling material, putting that up on the roof, sitting on that, and then jumping off that. Come on, what could happen? <laughs> anyway, maybe that stuff comes from my dad to take things and to improve on them if all possible. So over the years that I've produced so many radio shows for so many projects, podcasting has become uh, another route for me. And so I really enjoy working with people who have something to say and something to bring to the world in a good way and helping them get that out into the world. And uh, it's a lot of work. You know, I mean, I think we're all built for certain things. I see friends of mine who, you know, have certain vocations like, ah, can't, I don't think that's in my wheelhouse. Didn't want to, well, don't want to do that. So for me, it's radio production, microphones, speaking, all this writing. This is my job and I enjoy it. And I really enjoy getting other people to, to find that in themselves as it were. So one of the podcasts that I produce is called the Awake in the Network podcast. And it is hosted by Billy Dexter and Melissa G. Wilson, two very formidable people. And it's, of course, about networking and business and things like that. But they also come from this, this uh, spiritual perspective as well, that some in, somewhere in all this business we're doing, there is uh, opportunities to connect with people in ways you never would have in just a pure business sense. And so a lot of their work is built on the fact that if you stay awake in what you're doing and who you're connecting with and things like that. Opportunities come out of that. And it's not the hard sell thing like, um, okay, we're going to go to a networking event. We're going to all exchange business cards and I'm going to call you the next day and we're going to do business. They're talking about relationships and building relationships. And I can tell you, um, they're right on. I, I was doing it without knowing I was doing it. So much of the radio business is about relationships, uh, because it's a tenuous business at best. Uh, most of the work that I've gotten over the years is not because, matter of fact, I bet all of the work that I've gotten over the years, projects, being on the air, production, you name it, all comes from somebody I know. And I didn't solicit it for the most part. You know, the whole Oprah thing, when I went there in 06, uh, started actually in 04. And I had the thought about Oprah Radio and it didn't exist at that point. I was in my studios in Michigan doing a, my show, and there was a television monitor in there. And I happened to notice a guy named Dave Pelzer on the Oprah show. And Dave Pelzer wrote a book, I think it was called A Child Called It, about the difficulties and the uh, somewhat horrific conditions he endured. But he became this, I think it was an Air Force guy. He did really well. So he wrote this book. And it, it, back in the, the 90s, it was a, a big thing, and then into the 2000s. So I remember seeing Dave on her show, and he had just been on the air with me the day before. And I thought, oh, Oprah's stealing my guests. Kidding, but that was in my head. So I knew that they were going to come for her at some point because they had just given Howard Stern like a billion dollars for a 10-year contract. And back then, XM and Sirius Satellite really were separate. So Sirius, I believe, had Stern... And I knew at some point XM was going to go for the next biggest name, if not the bigger name in, uh, in the world, the biggest brand, which was Oprah. And I knew her a little bit. I had been a, on a cruise ship with her in, in 1986, right after I got married. And we, we kind of connected there in this really interesting way. And 
And here I was years later in radio. And, uh, you know, when I first met her, she was just a local Chicago person. She was not Oprah yet. She was just Oprah Winfrey in Chicago. Years later, as I mentioned, I'm on the air in 97. By that time, she's starting to really gain traction and, and all of that. So uh, when I designed the original idea for Oprah Radio, uh, I had to find a way to get it to her. And I can't remember. I think his name was Bill Bennett was the name of the guy who was the president of Harpo at the time. And a really good guy, but I did not know him. So there were friends of mine that knew him. And uh, Ginny Weissman, who listens to this podcast of that, I'm sure, and Karen Yellen Dillon, both knew Bill. So that was part of the way in the door. And then my buddy, Abe Thompson, actually my brother from another mother. I should really say it that way. Uh, Abe Thompson was very close to Oprah. And uh, so all those pieces kind of came together to get me in the door. I'll never forget sitting in... uh, this, you know, the main officer, Bill Bennett, and laying this out in just two or three pages. Here's the deal. Here's what's going on. Here's what's coming. You know, I, I look at some of these situations I've put myself in being awake in the network, and I'm thinking, I was out of my freaking mind. And I think you have to be out of your mind to have the kind of audacity and the nads to go in and sit down and go, listen, I have a whole idea to build a network for Oprah. And I've never shied away from what I'm supposed to do. I, I've never felt like, oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to do this. It's only in hindsight, when I look back years later, the meetings I've been in and the things that I've done and the places I've been and the people I've worked with, I think, how the hell did this happen? And I think a lot of it comes from being forward and and confident in what I'm supposed to do, but not overconfident. So that was in 2004, and it took two years for it to come around, and it turned out that they didn't want me on the radio. I always thought I was going to Harpo to be on the air. And what they needed me to do was to coach Dr. Oz, Gene Chatsky, Bob Green, Nate Burkus, some of the other crew, uh, because they'd never done radio. And the rest of the production teams that were there, there were a couple of on-air people, but they were disc jockeys. They do radio morning stuff, and that was important. But no one had ever done talk radio. There was nobody on staff that had done talk radio, except for me. So they wanted me to coach, and it's one of those times where you got to, at least for me, I had to put my ego in my pocket and say, you know, I've been working at that point seven years on the radio, and I thought, well, this is my huge chance. And quite frankly, at the time, I had people who had invested in me uh, because I was heading in that direction. And to not be able to close that loop with and for them still bothers me all these years later. I mean, every investment you make is a is a risk, and I that was well known. But it doesn't matter. It's it's the risk. It was me. You know, it wasn't a stock somewhere. I was the stock. And so it was very difficult to this day. You know, I still think at some point there might be an opportunity to, 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 to get that done. Uh, and it may or may not happen. We'll see. But my point in all this, this long ramble that took up four and a half, five minutes longer than I should have, was that a lot of what has happened in my life comes from the fact of connection in a way that I could never have predicted. You know, I, I got a call this week from Jerry Kramer uh, we check in on each other every other week or so just to bullshit. And he called me and we were going back and forth on things. And I think about, you know, if you'd have told me when I was nine or 10 years old that Jerry Kramer is going to be calling me on a phone in my pocket. I thought, what the hell are you talking about? But so much of that comes out of being what Melissa and Billy talk about, which is being awake in the network, being conscious. And it's so easy for life 
to knock us into unconsciousness. You, you watch the same shit over and over again, these same tired old arguments with the same tired old people. And it friggin' wears me out. And I don't want to get worn out. I came here to do something. I don't have the energy, time, or effort to go in that direction. So probably, I don't know, a couple of weeks, three weeks ago, something like that, we tape every other week. Billy came up with this comment about an idea that he, I don't know if he got it from somebody or what, you know, ideas get passed around. It really kind of doesn't matter. I can't trace the specific origin past Billy Dexter, but he came up with this thing called the uh, QTR. Uh, And I'll explain what that is in, in just a minute, but it reminded me when he talked about QTR, reminded me about QR codes and QR codes you know, they've been around since like the 90s. I had to do a quick lookup. It's a like a, you know, those little two-dimensional matrix barcodes that you see everywhere. You know, you swipe them, whatever. And, and uh, it was invented back in 1994, actually, by a Japanese company for labeling automobile parts. And now it's everywhere. When we have to set our Roku, <laughs> it's another thing, right? We were better off with four freaking channels. I'm here to tell you. My Roku, which has 9 million channels, actually canceled Disney yesterday after four years. I purchased the Disney channel to watch the freaking Muppets. Something's wrong there when you got to pay to watch the Muppets. And most of these shows, I'm watching Andy Griffith, and I pay an X amount per month to watch a show that used to be free. And I can kind of get it on the antenna sometimes too. But the point is, and I'll get back to it, this QR code thing started 94 for one thing, and now it's everywhere. So when we reset the Roku, this QR code pops up on the television set, and you can scan it with your phone. It's like freaking Star Trek, man. And you scan it, and it resets it. I'm like, how the hell does that happen? How does that happen? It's on the television set, and then it's on the phone, and it's all wireless. And some place in where? I don't know. Nova Scotia? This bounces off a satellite, comes back, and my Roku's restored. Fascinating. So I started thinking about the, the QR code, how that resets things, and it, it reveals information for things when Billy was talking about the QTR. And what QTR, so QR code, I should remind you, uh, stands for quick response code. So that's QR, quick response code. They're everywhere. QTR is everywhere, but you don't see any kind of matrix for it, which is unfortunate. So that's, I think, the main focus of the show this morning because it really hit me what he was talking about and how it ties into something that I've been so adamant about for years, 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 years. QTR is quality time remaining. Quality time remaining in your life. And his comments around it were the all about being conscious and aware of the fact that you're going to die. And if you know you're going to die, because we're all going to die at some point, in some way, shape, or form, then you should be working backwards from that and living as much as possible. Where other people are doing the opposite, which are bitching, moaning, and complaining about being alive, how horrible things are, how difficult they are, what a tough day they had. And there's some leeway to piss off on some of this stuff for sure. But it's a brilliant concept. QTR, what is the quality time remaining for you? Now, we each get to decide that. For some people, quality time remaining is sitting watching the buzzer channel and reruns of, you know, the match games. 
and that's all that makes them happy. And that's fine. I guess it's finding what works for you and not complaining that it's not because there are things you can do to change that. So the quality time remaining is way more important than the quick response code. That's for sure. So once again, that pushed me right back to my human math that I did the talk, the uh, TED talk in Ontario a few years ago. It's something I worked on for years. Everywhere I've been, I've done talks on it, as I mentioned. I've written about it. I do a lot of radio shows built around it. I guess I still think this is radio, even though it's podcasting. And it is a, it's a revelation to me. It's something that I think is, is a wake-up call, or at least it should be. So keeping in mind what Billy talked about, quality time remaining, and, and defining what that means is like really important. So I have friends of mine. Kramer is one of them. He's 88 years old. And when Jerry Kramer calls me, he sounds like he's 68 years old. And I think a huge part of that is because he still has purpose. There's still projects he's working on. There's always something going on in the back of this guy's mind. One of the things that's in his mind that I'm happy to talk about here is something called the goat code. Try and say that twice in the morning before coffee. The goat code. And the goat code is greatest of all time. Now, in his particular case, it would be football. Jerry Kramer's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I don't know how many times they passed him over. 13, 15, 17, I don't remember. But by the time he was inducted in 2018, he was due. He was overdue. And it was really, to some greater or lesser degree, um, his daughter Alicia, who pushed a groundswell of fans and former players to say, why has this guy been passed over so many times? And he went into the Hall of Fame. I was you know, we were very honored to be at the event with Jerry and spend time with him. And Brian Urlacher was going into the Hall of Fame, so that was a double, a double treat there. But bottom line is Jerry Kramer at 88 just had a book come out with Bob Fox last year called Run to Win. Pick it up. It's good stuff. Whether you're a Packer fan or not, it's kind of the you know, secondary point. It's about football. It's about life. It's about great characters, people, you know, these, these bit larger-than-life men that played the game, especially for the Lombardi Packers. But whenever he calls me, I know it's not the usual, how's it going? We talk for two minutes and we're off the phone. It's an hour. And it's a deep dive into purpose and possibilities and what's going on. He's 88. And when I was talking to him the other day, this goat code thing he's, he's mentioned is on something called Brinks TV, a one-stop shop like there's so many gaming sites and things like that. But this is somehow connected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And they have the list of all the graded players. And then they break down what made them great, the GOAT code, greatest of all time. And I started thinking about the GOAT code and then the QTR code and then the QR code. There's a lot of codes going on in our lives. And I had to take the car in to get past the emissions test, made sure there was no codes that were tripped. Our life is full of codes, zip codes, they're everywhere. So anyway, I digress. So Kramer calls, he's got this great idea, and he's like, wouldn't it be great? And that's how usually this starts. Wouldn't it be great if... What a great setup for the anything. Wouldn't it be great if fill in the blank? And his was, wouldn't it be great if we wrote a book based on the GOAT code? And and these great, well, not just football players, but great athletes, great human beings that left us instructions on how to be great as well, to do something with your life instead of bitch, moan, and complain. Now, when Jerry says, wouldn't that be a great idea, it means it's his idea. I'd have to do a lot of work. <laughs> I said, you know what, Jerry? It is a great idea. 
Um, I don't have the time to do it, but it is a great idea. And I can incorporate some of this stuff on Saturday mornings when I talk. It's important. So we went back and forth and tussled on that. And, and he's obviously featured at some point. He'll be featured in the Goat Code on Brinks TV. And he was very excited about that. And he should be. This is a guy that comes from nowhere. Gets plucked, I don't know, with the 58th round of the NFL draft in 1958. And ends up being one of the greatest guard in the history of football. So when I get a chance to spend time with people like that, I do not dismiss it. I do not take it for granted. No matter how many times we've talked or how long we've known each other or how many times I've heard the stories, it's like it's like that with Randy Hunley. You know, when I was out with him and we had some hot dogs for lunch last week and kind of just chuckled it up and, and hung out. And I realize I have these people in my life that are great resources for me of purpose and how you do things and how you don't do things. So this QTR code, quality time remaining, using Kramer as an example, he's already passed his expiration date on average, which is 77 and a half. He's 88. So Jerry's way past the average life expectancy in the United States. His life is still filled with purpose. It is limited by mobility for sure, but in his mind, he's still building stuff, just like my dad was. He's still building stuff. He's still doing stuff. He's still coming up with ideas. And I think when you stop doing that, that puts people in a spiral of, of uh, non-purpose. And when you're in a spiral of non-purpose, you start to forget why you're here or that you're here at all. That's why I have such an issue with the news. All it does is show snapshots of the worst of effing human behavior possible. Here in Chicago, WGN Channel 9 is like the big channel. I mean, they all fall in line, but you you know, behind that, but they're on like at four, five, six, all the way to like eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning. And then they come back at 11 and 12 and one, and then at four o'clock. And I get the news sells. It's the highest billing segments of any, uh, platform, but it's all for the most part negative. I mean, they have a couple of nice things and they do, you know, they make you laugh in the morning to offset the bullshit. But I mean, when you, it, it's like everything else, if you just don't eat good food, it's going to catch up with you at some point. You get away with it for a while. One day you're like, what the, f- what? So I go back to the human math thing as it ties into the QTR, the quality time remaining, and keeping the fact that Mr. Kramer's already passed his expiration date. I don't know how many days I'm going to get. Neither do you. That's the whole idea. The odds of being born are one in 400 trillion. I shit you not. Go look it up. One in 400 trillion. So the odds of you being born, you've already won the lottery. I mean, think about that. And if you're still here, you still won the lottery. I have a lot of friends, and so do you, and family, that I wish were here. I have stuff in my studio that are, are reminders of those people who've gone ahead of me. You know, they thought they'd wait another day or two or 10 or 100. They're not here. So quality time remaining is an unknown quotient. You have to determine what you're going to spend time on with the remaining time you have. But it takes a conscious effort to do that. It means turning off some things and turning on other things. You know, when I think about all the podcasts that are in the world, I mean, just because they have a microphone doesn't mean you should be listening to it. It has given voice to a lot of things that is just bullshit, in my opinion. And people listen to this over and over again. It's like, well, that's true. It is and isn't. Sometimes when I'm on the landfill of Facebook, I'll see friends of mine posting stuff that's patently untrue. And, they, and I've long given up saying, excuse me. I used to send little notes. By the way, you might want to research that. Well, that would take effort. That would take consciousness. 
and case closed on that. So, you know, and, and, and Bill Curtis and I went back and forth on this quite a few times. He is a huge fan of the internet. His opinion was the more information, the better off we are, the smarter people we'll get. <laughs> I disagree. I think all it does is reinforce what you already know. And very few people will use this vast, we have more information at our fingertips than any group of humans have ever had in the history of everything. And look where we're at. Look how things are. Yeah, I was, get to this, I'll finish up the QTR code thing here and then that'll push me to something that we watched last night that I thought was, uh, I, I already knew about it, it was interesting. Um, anyway, this rolls me into human math. QTR Quality time remaining, right? My human math is based on the average life expectancy. So the average life expectancy, as I mentioned, is 77.5 years. That is 28,287.5 days if you live to be that age, 77 and a half. You get 28,287.5 days. You get an extra half day. Got it? Good. On my math, I had to see how many days I've already used. So in a rough guesstimate, I take 12 months times 65, because that's how many years I've been around. And that comes out to 23,725 days I've already used. They're already in the bank. They're done. Can't use them anymore. They're burned off. They're never coming back. 28,725. So the human math for Johnny is an average that I'd like to get to of 28,287.5, but I've used 23,725. My quality time remaining is 4,562 and a half days. 4,562.5 days. I've burned up 23,725 out of a possible 28,287.5. For all you math people, don't be impressed. I have a calculator. That basically gives me 12 and a half years if everything works out. And if it doesn't work out, point. So what's the key here then? Well, the key would have the consciousness to realize that since you don't know how long you're going to be here, we all have a piece of paper that says what time we got here and where we got here and how much we weighed and what our footprint looked like and the doc that slapped us awake. But nobody has a piece of paper that says when you're leaving. That's the difference. And since you don't have the piece of paper that says you're leaving, and since you have evidence that it could happen at any time, that would not every moment be like quality time remaining moments. That's why I wrote the book, Every Moment Matters, because it does. I've had two near life experiences. They call them near death, but what they really did was brought me more alive. You should have seen me before this. I'm really wired now, but even before this, I was kind of like moving along. This is just extra levels of John. It just doesn't shut off because I've been to two times in my life where they said, you shouldn't be here. So let me get this right. One in 400 trillion that I'm going to get here now I have these other places that, and events and incidences that said I shouldn't be here, so maybe I should do something with the time while I'm here. That's how I look at everything. I know it's not normal. I get it. But that's why I do these shows, to remind you and myself. Last few minutes together, um, quality time remaining. Last night we watched the making of We Are the World. It's, a, it's on Netflix and it's all about the 19, I think it was in 1985. They, they did that whole big record thing. Um, and uh, it was really a collaboration of uh, Ken Cragen, who was a, a musician, 
agent. He was an agent back in the day. I don't know if he's still around or not. And um, he had this idea to do something about the deep famine uh, in Ethiopia. And it was a really interesting documentary that showed how the thing happened. It was for the AMA Awards and they had to get all these artists to sing. And they, you know, these are all huge names. And Michael Jackson was the lead. And, uh, you know, it was just really, really fascinating. Uh, Lionel Richie, who I've never given much thought to one way or the other, was the main driver in the documentary. He was the guy who was the host of the AMAs. He wrote the song along with Michael Jackson. And um, he was really good. I mean, he's a very good storyteller and really recaptured everything and, and talked about how it came apart and back together again. And they only had one shot at this. And the whole idea was to create this album, put the music on it, sell it, and all the money goes to famine relief. It's a great idea. And I knew back then that when this took place that there was a lot of artists that were not included that probably should have been. Interestingly enough, without giving the whole thing away if you're going to watch it, Waylon Jennings, the late great Waylon Jennings country singer, was invited to be part of it. And about three quarters of the way through, he just said, F it, I'm, I'm leaving. He just left the recording. He did. He's not a part of it. It just shows him like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. It's like after the AMAs, it's two o'clock in the morning and Waylon Jennings is there and he's standing next to Dan Aykroyd, which was an odd choice. I don't remember Dan Aykroyd doing anything except the Blues Brothers, but I digress number two. Anyway, my pal John Denver, who uh, was doing environmental work before most people can spell it, was not included. And I remember back in the, in the day when this all took place that it really hurt him. And I think it hurt him because he, he was not being recognized for what he had done, which is far bigger than one song to help people. He'd been doing this for decades. He was an activist, uh, you know, political activism, humanitarian work, you name it, he's done it all. And to not be included, it, it bothered him. And I think probably more than anything else is the fact that the Hunger Project, which still exists, was co-founded by John and the late great Harry Chapin. It reminds me of doing the work in the world, that whether you're recognized for it or not, you do the work. And I think that was the reverse lesson, for lack of a better term, about John. You know, all of those artists, to a greater or lesser degree, went out and did nothing else since that for anything in the world. But it was a hallmark of John's music, and he, he dedicated his life to it. And um, he doesn't need me to hold up that end, that's for sure. It's in print, it's in documentation, and it's definitely in his music of, of the work that he did in the world to make things better, whether it's for the four-legged or the two-legged. But looking deeper into it, I thought about how important it is to do something. So while, yeah, he got snubbed and it was probably pissed him off, I thought about Kramer being snubbed by the Hall of Fame 17 times and how much that didn't sit well. But eventually he was inducted, and I think... In some way, John's work stands on its own. Whether he was in part of that or not, eh, no big deal. There was an ironic piece, though, because I knew this going in, that when they did the open of the show, they're showing old footage of Los Angeles and, and somebody, Ken Cragen, driving somewhere, and they do this long shot on some boulevard there, and there's a huge billboard on the side. John Denver at the Universal Amphitheater from July 9th to the 15th in 1985. So he was part of it anyway in some weird way, in my opinion. And in order to just wrap that up, um, I'll always drop the needle on one of his songs. And right around that time, he had uh, gone to the Soviet Union. He was the first Western performer 
to go to the Soviet Union and start to try and bring people together. Uh, there was a cultural exchange that had lapsed, and he was the first one to go back and did private concerts, then he went back and did public concerts, and he and the late, great Roger Nichols, uh, along with John's brother Ron, you know, produced these tapes that sat around in a garage for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, uh, long after John had passed, and then Ron and, and Roger produced this great CD, uh, JD and in the Soviet Union, USSR, kind of an unplugged thing because it was mostly just him and his guitar. Smaller audiences, but big voice stuff as always. And that CD is back in release. Uh, if you've listened to the show over the years or any of the other stuff I've done, you know that um, Simpsy Nichols and Ashley Nichols, Roger's daughters, have been instrumental, pun intended, in getting that released. It took a lot of work, 10 years, for them to get the, the tapes and the, the masters and the rights and all the kind of shit you got to go through. But they got it done. And you can go on and find this on all the platforms. There's a physical CD you can find it on Spotify and all the rest of these. Uh, but it is, it's important to me because on one hand, you got We Are The World. You got, a, you know, I don't know, 27, 30. I don't know how many musicians were in there for one night singing a song. And juxtaposition that, you got John Denver in Russia singing to the Russian people. And I guess you come away with the fact that everybody does something where they're at. For John, it was on a much larger scale than most of these artists. But you can't fault them for doing something to, to alleviate uh, the suffering uh, around the world. So music does that. And while I found some really odd choices in there, like Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> I don't know what he's doing on there. But I did love the part when Waylon Jennings left. So if you get to watch it on Netflix, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite songs that was recorded in the Soviet Union in 1985. Roger Nichols was a freaking genius. They called him the immortal for a reason. And the sound quality out of a, you know, jury-rigged recording unit stuffed in suitcases, transported on airplanes. I'm fascinated how Roger was able to, to grab this sound of John's. And to me, it's better than anything he's ever done. That whole USSR performance series was just amazing. So until next time, be well, safe travels, count your QTR, count it, keep the faith. Take care. Haven't seen all there is to see, but I've seen quite a bit. I've seen things I'll always remember, some things I wish that I could forget. I haven't quite been around the world, but I've been around the block. I know that distances are meaningless, like the hands that move around the clock. And I know that love is everywhere, always safe always true and exactly where it comes from is where it's going to your heart to mine my heart to yours talk about opening windows talk about opening doors my heart to yours your heart to mine Love is a light that shines from heart to heart And here I am sitting in old Hong Kong The harbor and the lights They're like diamonds in the heavens Enough to brighten the darkest of nights 
There's another side to sorrows There is to everything Like the other side of lonely Is falling in love again And then you know there's an answer To the suffering we see And though it isn't easy It's still as simple as you and me For you know that love is everywhere Always safe, always true And exactly where it comes from Is where it's going to Your heart to mine My heart to yours Talk about opening windows Talk about opening doors My heart to yours your heart to mine Love is a light that shines from heart to heart Your heart to mine My heart to yours Talk about opening windows, friends Talk about opening doors My heart to yours Your heart to mine Love is a light that shines from heart to heart.